Welcome back to Quick Bits for the week of July 10th through the 14th. A lot to catch up on in Idaho, in the Corey Richens case out of Utah, and a few other things we touched on, plus a podcast about McMars and Molly Crew. So let's get into it. I'm legal analyst Emily D. Baker. This is the Quick Bits, where I break down just the main points of the pop culture and entertainment cases I'm currently covering on YouTube and the Emily Show podcast. Let's get into it. First, if you are not signed up for Law Nerd Alerts to know when I'm going live about the topics you care most about, go ahead and head over to lawnerdalert.com and get signed up. It's a free email service run by me and my team. We don't sell your emails to anyone and we will keep you in the loop with what you care about most. All right, Idaho is where we're at right now. There are a couple things happening in the Brian Koberger prosecution in case First, there was a speedy trial stay issued by the judge for 37 days. The defense has made motions about whether or not they will be contesting the way that the grand jury was seated, and most of the grand jury documents have just been turned over. Some of them won't be turned over till towards the end of July. So the judge put a stay on the case for 37 days. This means that the prosecution has to bring Brian Koberger to trial within six months plus 37 days. It also means that if this comes to trial at the beginning of October and the defense needs more time, they can ask for that additional time to push the case out to trial a little further without waiving the right to speedy trial. It doesn't stop any of the deadlines. If there are alibi defenses or witnesses or evidence, the defense still has to turn those over by the end of July. So it really just gives a little bit more time to prep the case, given the amount of information that's going on. I think towards the end of this period, we might see those motions um, with regard to a more permanent stay to fight over how the grand jury was seated. But we'll see what the defense chooses to do there. They have not held back on the amount of litigation. Something that the defense and the prosecution both agreed on was that the 1122 King Road house could be demolished. The prosecution and the defense have both released the house. Law enforcement and the court have released the house. The house is now owned by the University of Idaho, who indicated in February and then again in June that they would, in fact, be demolishing the house and intended to do so before students returned for the fall semester. However, Kaylee Gonzalez's family, through their attorney, had objected to the house being demolished, had asked for this to wait until after the trial. The university reversed their decision to demolish this home before students came back in the fall and said they would hold off till at least October. I understand the desire to pause because what if there's just one thing in the house that's needed? The question I got on live streams a lot is what about a jury view like we saw in the Murdoch case? But we know from emails from the prosecutor that that's really unlikely in this case because the house is so changed. Furniture has been taken out. Floors have been ripped up. And a lot of chemical agents have been used in the house for testing and to uncover biological evidence, et cetera. So the home is not in substantially the same condition as it was at the time of the crimes, like in the Murdoch case. So there's not really much for the jury to learn from it. They can learn from videos, walkthroughs, scans, diagrams, photos, and things like that. So 
both the defense and prosecution say that they don't need the house any further. And the police have also said law enforcement no longer needs that house. They believe that there are no other items in the house of evidence or potential evidence. I also went over a number of the discovery motions wherein the prosecution showed what they had turned over to the defense as those discovery motions continue to be ongoing. Those are listed down below in my long form content. Over to Utah. There's a lot going on in the Corey Richens case as well, but it's not all happening in the murder case. Corey Richens is the woman in Utah who's been accused of killing her husband with fentanyl in a Moscow mule and then writing a children's book about grief and using his name and likeness and image in selling the book, in writing the book. And there are three notable civil lawsuits that I covered in connection to this homicide case. First, there's the settling of the deceased's estate. Eric Richens had moved his estate into a trust before he died. It seemed and is alleged that this was done without his wife, Corey Richens, now accused of his murder, without her knowledge. And she did not become aware that the estate had been moved from just a will into a trust that was being overseen by his sister. She didn't learn that until after his murder or death. We will see what happens. I will probably use the two phrases interchangeably. There is a lawsuit from the estate suing Corey Richens over the book and the likeness rights and the proceeds of the book. But there's also a lawsuit from Corey Richens against the estate saying that their prenuptial agreement stands and the estate needs to start turning over funds to her. So I covered all three of those different lawsuits. What's going on right now with the settling of the estate is the estate has made a motion under the Slayer statute in Utah saying that Corey Richens cannot profit from the murder of Eric Richens. They laid out their argument for why there is enough evidence, they say, to show that she is the one who did this. And her assets should also be frozen so that she's not profiting off of this killing until the court decides in the civil court whether or not the homicide of Eric Richens disqualifies her from being able to profit. So that is pending in the settling of the estate. Then Corey Richens is suing the estate over a line in their prenuptial agreement that we're going to look at together. In the prenuptial agreement, it talks about her husband's business. His stone masonry business was making millions of dollars a year. He was bringing home approximately a million dollars a year in pay. The business was doing quite well. And at the end of the prenuptial agreement, it says that the business stays the separate property of the husband unless the husband dies prior to the wife while the two are lawfully married. So if the husband passes away, while they are still married, then the husband's interest in the business transfers to the wife. And the husband, in this case, Eric, owned that property 50-50 with his business partners. Corey Richens is suing the estate over the 50% interest in the business. And we know from the all the filings in the multiple lawsuits that we've looked at that Eric's interest in the business was bought out by the business partner and that money's being held by the estate. Corey Richens is saying the estate or the trust shouldn't have that money. That money should go to her. And of course, the estate is saying all of her money should be frozen because if she's the one who killed him, she shouldn't be taking any of this at all. But that line 
in this prenup that if they are still married when the husband dies, the 50% interest in the business goes to her is very interesting, given that it's alleged in other filings that Eric Richens had been consulting with a divorce attorney at the time that he died and that he had told acquaintances that he believed Corey Richens had tried to poison him prior to him dying of that fentanyl overdose in a Moscow mule. In the lawsuit between the estate and Corey Richens over the children's book, we also learn more about all of the searches that Corey Richens had made on her phone and other electronic devices after Eric's death. I found those to be illuminating, as did the live chat, so I'm going to share them with you in quick bits. And these are those searches. Can you delete everything on an iCloud account? Can deleted text messages be retrieved from an iPhone? Can cops uncover deleted message iPhone? How to lock my iCloud? How to permanently delete information from an iPhone remotely? Can cops force you to take a lie detector test? What are you allowed inside Utah jails? Will life insurance pay if death certificate says pending? Luxury prisons for the rich in America. If someone is poisoned, what does it go down on the death certificate as? FBI analysis of electronics in an investigation. Is find my iPhone ever wrong? Can FBI find deleted messages? What does FBI do with electronics for searches? Can the cause of death be changed on a death certificate? Why would the FBI be involved? What is considered a lethal dose of fentanyl? Detective Jamie Woody relationship to Richens. Those are very interesting searches. I still want to know exactly the dates of all these searches. When this goes to trial, which I think that it will, we will see much more about these searches in the murder trial, but we are learning quite a lot from this case as the civil cases move on. Will these civil cases get stayed pending the murder trial the way that they did in the Murdoch case? It's possible. The two civil lawsuits, the estate versus Corey and Corey versus the estate are very new filings. The settling of the estate has been going on for over a year since close in time to Eric's death when, of course, the executors of the estate were appointed and this all started to be probated. On the podcast, I covered the McMars versus Motley Crue lawsuit. It is a staggering lawsuit that is now looking like it might be pushed into arbitration. The other members of the band are asking that that goes into arbitration and not be litigated um, in trial court in Los Angeles. I am keeping an eye on it, but if you want that whole breakdown of that lawsuit, it's actually kind of devastating. That is on the podcast episode where Mick Mars is alleging that Motley Crue is pushing him out of the band that he has been a member of for the entirety that that band has existed. Finally, I covered the Sarah Silverman versus OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT lawsuit. Before I got lost into playing with ChatGPT along with the chat, but this lawsuit is not just against ChatGPT. There's a parallel lawsuit also against Meta and their large language model AI called Llama. And what is being alleged in both of these suits is that the 
large language models are being trained on copyrighted works so that if you go to ChatGPT and ask it for a summary of Sarah Silverman's book or the other authors who are suing their books, it can give you a very detailed summary of the books indicating that the large language models had, and this is the word they used in the lawsuit, ingested those books. Where the boundaries of copyright are in the world of AI like this is going to be very interesting because on one hand, there's some conversation about, well, what if you go check out a book at the library and you read it and then you go home and you tell someone else, hey, I read this book and this is what happened in the first chapter and this is what happened in the second chapter and you retell um, that story. Is that different than feeding it to a model that can then retell the story to hundreds of thousands of people? Is it different because ChatGPT is not always free? There is a paid use. Are they now creating derivative works and reselling them? And so the boundaries of copyright and the world of open AI and large language models like this that can take in information and then recite it back to you is a very interesting question that the courts are going to have to deal with and where those boundaries are. Is this loaning a CD to someone, you know, even though you're the one that bought it, they get to listen to it? Or is this stealing someone's copyrighted work and then creating derivative works of it? I think the purpose of both of these lawsuits and the many others that are starting to go on like them is to find out exactly how these large language models like ChatGPT are being given this information and what permissions are needed to allow AI models to be trained on copyrighted works can they be you know shown or or given the information and you show an ai something given information about movies and music and other copyrighted works and that question i think can only really be answered after thorough discovery into how these models are trained and i think that's the point of these lawsuits i'm going to keep an eye on them cuz it's interesting it's very interesting questions and when these copyright laws were written, they weren't intending and even forward-looking to this exact scenario, but they were thinking about the problems of derivative works and recreating works and how far down the chain a work is protected or not. And with that, I hope you enjoyed this Quick Bits. I will see you all around the interwebs next week. It's time to go. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a honored. Bye. For deep dives into the stories that I covered here, you can find them on my YouTube channel at The Emily D. Baker and The Emily Show Podcast. I stream every Tuesday and Thursday. The podcast goes live on Wednesdays. And if you want more Law Nerd community, come join us at lawnerdsunite.com.